Hello and welcome to the second podcast in the summer term lecture series on the history of feminism and feminisms at the German Historical Institute London. I am Jane Freeland, a historian of feminism in modern Germany and the postdoctoral coordinator of the International Standing Working Group on Medialization and Women's Empowerment here at the Institute. Today I am joined by Professor Jane Whittle from the University of Exeter and Dr. Laura Schwartz from the University of Warwick for a roundtable discussion on understanding women's work from the early modern era to the present. Now, although our discussion today starts in the early modern era, the question of what is classified as work and how different kinds of work are valued and gendered has recently been thrown into sharp relief with the introduction of coronavirus lockdown measures. In the face of school closures, the shuttering of the service and retail sector, alongside work from home orders, women have not only faced higher levels of job loss and furlough, but have also borne the brunt of increased domestic labour. Alarmingly, Sam Smethers, the chief executive of the Fawcett Society, was recently quoted in The Guardian as saying, and I quote, women's workplace equality will have been set back decades by this crisis unless the government intervenes to avert it, end quote. Needless to say, then, we are at a particularly important moment to be discussing women's work and the ways in which society, but also historians, have drawn distinctions between male and female labour. So on that note, hello and welcome, Jane and Laura. It is really wonderful to be able to speak to you both today. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Hi, great. I mean, it's great to have you here virtually um, when we can't meet in person. So we're going to start off by hearing from Jane Whittle. Jane is a professor of economic and social history at the University of Exeter. She has published widely on the history of work, consumption, property rights, and the household economy in England between 1300 and 1750, including a fascinating piece that came out last year in the journal Past and Present. She's also won numerous grants for her research, including an advanced grant from the European Research Council, which she currently holds for a project on forms of labor, gender, freedom, and experience of work in the pre-industrial economy. Welcome, Jane. So my interest in the themes I want to explore today um, go back quite a long way. And they have two origins. One was a frustration with the way that medieval and early modern household economies were conceptualized, and particularly the role of women's work in those economies. This is often loosely described as domestic without any particular justification. The second was the realization of a glaring contradiction in the history of women's work. On the one hand, it seemed women worked just as hard, if not harder than men in terms of hours and range of tasks. On the other, historians often struggled to find evidence of women's work. And when they did, they often found women worked less than men. And this contradiction, in fact, is still evident in the 20th century. So time use studies show that women work more hours per week than men. But women are a smaller proportion of the official labour force and work fewer paid hours than men. These two problems are, of course, closely related. One is about how we conceptualise women's work and the other is about how we research women's work. But concepts affect research methods and vice versa. First, while we have a rich historiography of women's work in pre-industrial England, stretching from Alice Clark's 
Working Life of Women in the 17th Century, which was published in 1919, to recent works um, such as Marjorie Mackintosh's study of working women in English society, 1300 to 1620, which was published in 2005. None had, to my mind, dealt adequately with the issue of what work actually is and of how to find evidence of unpaid work within the household. England was a predominantly rural country up to the late 18th century. And until the late 17th century, it was also predominantly agricultural. And yet we had remarkably little evidence of unpaid work in farming households. So the Leverhulme project that um, I ran from 2015 to 2018 about women's work in the rural economy set out to do two things to think conceptually about the nature of work and to collect a new type of evidence about work which would allow us to see inside ordinary households. And these two strands resulted in two publications. One was an article, um, a critique of approaches to domestic work in past and present, and an another was the article The Gender Division of Labour in Early Modern England, which appeared in the Economic History Review. So let's consider the concept of work first. Women's work is often described as domestic, but in the context of a pre-industrial economy, what does this actually mean? Domestic is used in the existing literature on women's work in at least three ways. One is to denote the space in which work took place. So work done inside the house is domestic. Yet it's worth noting that many routine tasks such as collecting water or doing laundry took people outside the house in this period. While the house was the main location of many other forms of work, money earning work, such as weaving or brewing. In fact, historians describe work as domestic, but often mean a particular type of work, what we still call housework. Yet there was no concept of housework, meaning cooking, cleaning and care work in this period. It's a 19th century idea. And there's a good reason for this. The early modern household was the location of all types of work, and thus the term is too vague to be helpful in this period. Finally, domestic work or production is used to distinguish work for household use from work market or for generating income. Again, this is a modern distinction in which we see money making activities as part of the economy and those, those work activities that do not generate income as outside the economy. This final point suggests that the problem here is not just historians being vague about their use of the word domestic, but something much more fundamental, our concept of the economy itself. Up until the mid 18th century, when people wrote about the economy, they meant the household or farm economy. The economy of the nation was seen as an agglomeration of thousands of household economies. But this changed when Adam Smith conceptualised the economy as a process of production, trade and consumption. From Smith up until the late 19th century and including the writings of Karl Marx, the economy was conceived as concerned with the production of goods, but not services. When Alfred Marshall re Introduce the idea of services as part of the economy, he deliberately excluded services produced and consumed within the same household unless they were undertaken by a paid worker. It is this definition of the economy, including all production of goods, but only the production of paid services, 
but has dominated ever since and determines the calculation of GDP in countries across the globe. Hence, our modern concept of the economy includes production of goods for the market or for home use and the production of services for the market, but excludes production of services for home use and thus ignores a large slice of what is mostly women's work. This not only devalues women's work today, but has also been projected back into the past in a way that devalues women's work in those eras as well. In fact, it has led not only to economic historians ignoring the labour undertaken in cooking, cleaning and caring for family members, but also many other types of work done by women. This is largely a consequence of equating the early modern concept of housewifery with modern housework. The medieval and early modern concept of housewifery included a range of tasks which women had responsibility for in farming households. It included food processing, such as dairying, brewing, baking, which allowed food to be preserved or sold. Medical care, including the production of medicines and textile production, especially spinning, but also weaving and sewing as well. Often these activities, when undertaken by women, have been dismissed as housework or domestic work, considered to be of little consequence to a wider economy. And this really leads to a big conceptual mess that needs to be carefully disentangled. There is also another problem with applying modern notions of housework to the earlier period. We conceive work as unpaid work, typically undertaken by a married woman in the care of her immediate family. We see it as separate and qualitatively different from paid work and the economy. And particularly in the case of childcare, we see it as superior precisely because it's unpaid and carried out by a close relative. This was simply not the case before the late 18th century. This type of work was commonly performed by paid employees, servants, so that married women could undertake tasks which were seen as more important to the household economy. Even breastfeeding was a marketable form of labour. So in effect, the modern economy has demarketized these types of tasks, creating a new and different set of values about gendered forms of work. I want to finish by saying a little about historical evidence of work and research methods. So most forms of historical evidence from the period I study are biased against women. They're written by men and they're more concerned with men. Yet so much evidence survives, but there's no absolute lack of evidence about women. But we need to recognise that often different research methods compared to those used to study men will be needed to research the experience of women. For instance, advice literature provides descriptions of types of work women and men did, but it's highly formulaic and cannot be read as describing households. Men, medieval and early modern doctors describe men with their occupations, giving occupational descriptors, such as husbandman, weaver, merchant, and so on. But these are rarely provided for women, giving the impression that women had no occupations. Records of waged work show not only that men were paid more than women, but in almost every account, men workers outnumber women. How then do we recover a record of women's work? 
In the modern world, time use studies have long been used to capture patterns of work and other activities separately from their relationship to the market. It is from time use studies, for instance, that we know women on average work longer hours than men worldwide. The challenge for historians is to create something similar to a time use study. A similar method has been developed by a number of historians, such as Barbara Hannawalt for Medieval England, Peter Earle for Early Modern London, Sheila Ogilvie for Early Modern Germany, and Maria Orgren for pre-industrial Sweden. All rely on incidental and contextual evidence of work activities gleaned from court documents, which are collected and analysed quantitatively. And my Levy Hume project on women's work set out to develop a method that worked for studying early modern rural England. The available evidence in court documents is copious although the data collection process is very time consuming. Our initial findings published in the Economic History Review are promising, however, I think. We're now expanding the study to include two further English regions to create a national picture of the experience of work in early modern England. And this will be um, research that includes women just as much as men. Our initial, in our initial study, we record women doing as much agricultural work as they did housework, and that's housework defined as cooking and cleaning, and more everyday commerce, that is buying and selling, than they did care work. We record higher proportions of agricultural work done by women than we find in wage accounts. So in our data set, women do around a third of all agricultural tasks, compared to about 20%, which is what you normally find in wage accounts. And we show that the balance between types of work done by women varied over their life cycle, which is something that people haven't really been able to look at before. And finally, we show that when women did cooking, cleaning and care work, it was just as likely as agricultural work to be done for another, which is either for pay or for someone outside the household. So I hope that this research um, is really opening up new horizons about how we think about women's work in the past. And hopefully it'll help us think about women's work differently in the present as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. That was wonderful. Next, we have Dr. Laura Schwartz, who is a reader in modern British history at the University of Warwick. Having previously worked on the history of British feminism, Laura's most recent book um, moved her more into the field of labour history. In fact, she published a wonderful book that was released with Cambridge University Press last year titled Feminism and the Servant Problem, Class and Domestic Labour in the Women's Suffrage Movement. Her new project continues this trajectory and she is in the early stages of developing a collaborative project entitled Ordinary Working Class People, Brexit Britain and the New Labour History, which aims to interrogate the contemporary political mobilisation of a white male working class and to consider alternative and more heterogeneous histories of class in Britain. Thank you, Laura. I'll hand it over. Thank you very much, Jane Whittle. That was uh, really compelling and I'm so pleased to be actually having the quite rare experience of, of talking about my work alongside a medievalist and early 
homogenous rather than unhomogenous. So um, I'll begin now. I'm a historian of 19th and 20th century Britain with a focus on histories of feminism and gender. And the story that I'm about to tell of how the history of women's work has been written about in the last few decades relates largely to modern history, the period from about 1750 on. Having just heard Professor Whittle's talk, I'm very interested in some of the connections, but also discontinuities between the period I'm looking at and the medieval and early modern period. My last book was on the history of domestic service, specifically how domestic labour was theorised within early 20th century feminism and the emergence of domestic workers' unions at this time. The Domestic Workers' Union of Great Britain and Ireland was founded in 1909 by very young women working as domestic servants. Kathleen Oliver, who worked as a cook and general maid, was one of its main instigators in London. And in 1913, the union merged with a parallel organising project, the Scottish Federation of Domestic Workers, established by Jesse Stephen in Glasgow. These women had been politicised by the upsurge in working class and feminist militancy that occurred in Britain around the turn of the 20th century, a period marked by the formation of new unions among previously unorganised and so-called unskilled trades, especially female-dominated sectors. Yet the Domestic Workers' Union never received wholehearted support from either the women's or the workers' movement. This surely contributed to the fact that the union remained very small, peaking at about 2,000 members. It was also disrupted by the outbreak of war in 1914, where many women left domestic service for work in munitions factories, although sporadic attempts were made to reform it on a number of occasions in the interwar period. Nevertheless, I argue that this union formed the tip of the iceberg of broader and more informal organising efforts and everyday forms of resistance on the part of large numbers of domestic servants, which played at least some role in the gradual improvement in their pay and conditions over the course of the 20th century. The Domestic Workers' Union was not remotely interested in forming alliances with the employer class, kindly or otherwise, and revelled in descriptions of their meetings as, quote, striking a note of class war. Kathleen Oliver declared that, quote, we think employers are quite able to guard their own interests. May I now mention very emphatically that we are for the workers, end quote. The union developed a blacklist of bad employers and demanded better pay and a shorter working week. Glasgow domestic servants called a strike and succeeded in winning an extra weekly half-day holiday, a significant achievement for a group of workers who worked 16-hour days and usually had only Sunday afternoons off. While many trade unionists believed that it was impossible to organise servants because, unlike dairy workers or dock workers, they tended to work alone or only with one other servant and were isolated in the private homes of their employers, the Domestic Workers' Union attempted to overcome these difficulties by leafleting at the back doors of suburban streets and holding open tea parties in their offices where potential members 
could drop by on Sunday afternoons. This brief account of the Domestic Workers Union might begin to give you some sense of why domestic service has largely been ignored within labour history. Those early 20th century male trade unionists who were sceptical about the Domestic Workers Union were merely upholding a long-standing Marxist and socialist belief in the primacy of the industrial proletariat and the, pub and the politics of the public sphere. In other words, servants were seen as the polar opposite of the paradigmatic proletarian, the factory worker. Servants did not produce commodities for exchange within a capitalist economy, but were rather reproductive laborers, reproduce people rather than things, their work, cooking, cleaning, and caring. The widespread exclusion of domestic workers from socialist and labor movements was informed by and entangled with cultural definitions of domestic work as women's work and the workplace of the home as a private sphere largely outside the realm of politics. Thus domestic labor, whether carried out by the unwaged housewife or the low-waged servant, was seen more as a natural function of femininity than a form of employment under capitalism. This political and conceptual baggage subsequently informed the labour history that flourished in the 1960s and 70s, meaning that domestic servants were rarely the people that radical historians wanted to rescue from the condescension of posterity. Even today, the sub-discipline of labour history remains male-dominated, and when women workers are examined, the focus tends to be on those who most resemble the masculine model of the factory worker. Excellent work on domestic service appeared in the 1970s and 80s, most notably that of Leonor Davidoff, but this tended to be situated within feminist women's history rather than labour history. In the last 15 years or so, the history of domestic service has flourished once again. In the British context, Historians such as Carolyn Steedman, Alison Light, and Lucy Delap have made excellent use of theories of, of affective labour, subjectivity, and cultural studies to get at the particularities of domestic work, an industry dominated by the mistress-made relationship, entailing intimate contact with other people's bodily function, and the emotionally charged terrain home. This more recent set of developments within domestic service historiography occur in a moment when labour history was at a low ebb within the discipline as a whole, and broader studies of women's work written in the 21st century have tended to style themselves instead as cultural histories. When I came to start writing my book around 2011, I felt it was time to reconsider situating a history of domestic service very explicitly as a labour history. As a kind of historiographical provocation, I wanted to see what would happen when I applied traditional labour history and Marxist categories such as exploitation and the labour process to domestic work. In doing so, I was informed and inspired by much Marxist feminist theory from the 1970s onwards, 
which has argued that capitalism depends upon domestic labour. In other words, feeding people, raising children and keeping houses warm and clean is essential to the wider economy. Without that work being done, nobody would be able to carry out any other kind of work. It is the reproductive labour upon which so-called productive occupations rely. I decided to approach domestic servants as workers and see what the archives threw up. Almost immediately I came across the Domestic Workers Union and I could hardly believe that no previous historian had ever written more than a line or two about this fascinating organisation led by such politicised and outspoken young women. But I think that the lack of historical interest the Domestic Workers Union has received until now is simply testament to the power of our methodologies, in this case those of traditional labour history and orthodox Marxism, to determine apparently objective archival research. Having encountered a servants trade union, I wanted to understand the wider political and economic conditions that enabled this union to emerge. And in particular, what kinds of experiences led individual servants to join it, or at least take an interest in it. My focus was therefore less on the personal and emotional aspects of domestic labour, important as these are, and more on its economic aspects, pay, conditions and exploitation. I was particularly interested to deploy an economic definition of exploitation, to think about how the employer profited from the labour of the servant, rather than simply use the word exploitation as a synonym for oppression. In doing so, I wanted to counter a tendency within some of the historiography to exploited by a bad mistress or undertook rewarding and fulfilling work under a good mistress. I felt that this dichotomy was a rather blunt and unhelpful way of understanding the nature of work under capitalism and thus served to reify and separate off domestic work from other forms of labour. A focus on material and economic categories helped me to tease out some of the ambiguities in many accounts left by early 20th century servants, especially those employed by progressive and feminist-minded mistresses. Many of these servants were perfectly able to acknowledge that they had a good mistress, while simultaneously developing a clear-sighted analysis of how their work benefited their employers more than it did themselves, and pushing for better wages and contracts. My methodology not only integrated a history of domestic workers, back into a wider history of the working class at the time of the great unrest. It also highlighted the agency of those workers and revealed the extent to which the move away from live-in domestic service over the course of the 20th century was to a large degree driven by domestic workers themselves rather than just shifting middle-class tastes or changes to the economy. I'd like to finish by suggesting what I hope might be some of the broader implications of integrating the history of domestic servants into labour history. 
Firstly, it reminds us that the working class is not just made up of men. It also consisted of women, including women who wore frilly caps and aprons rather than clogs and shawls. This may be to state the obvious, but I think it is still a necessary reminder to some people on both the right and the left today who continue to believe that the only authentic working class subject is a bluff man from the north engaged in a manual trade. In fact, the service industries that dominate today's economy often seem to have displaced traditional, read industrial, working class jobs and militant trade unions are not quite as new as is often assumed. Servants made up between one third and one quarter of all waged women workers in Britain up until the 1930s. And even Karl Marx had to concede that they were still the most numerous kind of worker, male and female, when he was writing Capital in the 1860s. That's not to deny important transformations that have occurred in the economy over the last 50 years, and that these have entailed a decline in trade union membership. But I do think it's useful to know that workplace militancy was not limited to the factory or the dock, but was, and increasingly is, also undertaken by people beyond the industrial workplace, including those who clean for a living. Thank you. Great, thank you, Laura. So thank you, Jane, and thank you, Laura. I think what is so striking about both of your projects is that in very sort of different times and contexts, you're both questioning how conceptualizations of work, you know, what it is, where it takes place, and who performs it have structured how historians have written the history of work. And I think you're both you know, your work is sort of both challenging the, the elision of women's work or of certain types of women's work from historical scholarship, whether that's sort of economic history in, in your research, Jane, or labour history in, in Laura's. But, you know, this is a series on feminist histories. So I want to begin by asking you what role feminism plays in your research. You know, do you consider yourselves as contributing to a history of feminism or, you know, perhaps even what do you perceive feminist history to be? Um, well, as I mentioned, um, I have, I, I, from the very beginning, I have positioned myself as feminist history, my primary kind of political a professional identity and I am both or for a long time I was both a feminist historian and a historian of feminism so um, it's only really now that I'm beginning to uh, expand the subject that I'm looking at uh, which is no longer simply the history of feminism but also the history of women's work and the history of the British working class but in doing so I continue to always take uh, a kind of feminist approach to studying that. And I think that that allows me to ask particular questions of my material, uh, sometimes questions that people who do not position themselves as feminists might have failed to ask, or sometimes it allows me to notice things that other people might have failed to notice. So as I said, uh, 
I, I was very surprised that nobody had really picked up on this existence of this domestic workers union before, but I guess domestic service isn't necessarily the place that you go looking for histories of militant trade unions unless you have been inspired by uh, a lot of the feminist theory that I had been reading. Uh, Jane, uh, did you want to... Yeah, sure. So, um, so I've always thought of myself as a feminist and I've also been a historian all my professional life, but I haven't necessarily thought of myself as a feminist historian. And in fact, I started off studying agrarian capitalism and I was interested in Marxist theory and I was interested in everyday life in rural England. Um, but I think through teaching women's history, I gradually came to realise, I think, that perhaps not all women's history is necessarily very feminist and that um, there was still conceptual work to be done in really thinking about how we're approaching women's work in the past and how present ideas and prejudices um, affect the way we've, we've looked at women's work in the pre-industrial period. So I think I was... Um, perhaps starting off as subconsciously feminist rather than consciously feminist, um, but, but certainly have become um, more consciously feminist in my research methods, um, certainly over the last 10 years, um, as I have become, I think, more aware of the gaps and the prejudices in the way that people have looked at women's particularly women's economic contribution in the past. Um, and that the problems are not only about, um, you know, patriarchy in early modern England, the problems are about the attitudes of many historians in the um, 20th and 21st century. So, so I certainly now I would, yeah, I'm consciously feminist in my approach. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that in in both of your your papers, it's clear that some of these issues are not necessarily, or you know maybe they're produced at the time, but it's maybe actually much more sort of how the historical profession is interpreting work and labour and sort of the the ideas about labour produced in the sixties and the seventies, eighties that are informing how we think about work and women's work in the past. Um, you know, and I think it's also interesting to, to think about feminism as not only, you know, a history of women's activism, but also a methodology that we can, we can use as historians. Um, and I have to say on that note, as, as a historian of feminism and, and someone who looks at women and women's work in the sort of post-World War II era, I found it quite um, startling how many continuities there were, not only between your two papers, but also when we think about sort of discussions about women's labour and, and domestic work um, currently. So I was wondering, you know, what do you, what are the discontinuities taking place? So we can see, I, you know, I can see a lot of continuities, but where what are the changes that, that you see taking place? Um, shall I start on that one? Please go ahead, Jane. I mean, I, I think sometimes 
there's too much stress on the continuities and I mean I think there has been an assumption that like women have always done housework and childcare and it is therefore a sort of unchanging thing through history and historians increasingly show that that's absolutely not the case and um and I think what I've been trying to do in my work is is kind of get back past the various ideas about um, the male breadwinner and what women's role is and women's role um, doing unpaid housework and care work. To, these are basically 19th century ideas and to get back to the period before then and try and work out what people's attitudes were then. And there was certainly the attitude that, um, well, it's often said that women should work in, in the home. You find that in the earlier period. But actually, that means something quite different. Um, so I think there's a major discontinuity um, in the late 18th and early 19th century in attitudes to women's work. Um, and I think um, we have all lived through another major discontinuity in the 1970s and 1980s as it has become um, the norm for, for married women to combine paid work with childcare. Now, I'm not saying that women weren't doing that beforehand, but in terms of, of sort of numbers and percentages, I think um, it has increased dramatically. So I do think um, there's a problem um, or has been a problem in the past of kind of presenting women's role as unchanging and presenting housework and childcare as unchanging, whereas actually they have a very interesting um, and varied history. Um, Laura? Yes, I, I think I strongly agree with that. I think there's always a tension when you are writing about the history of women's work and particularly the history of uh, cooking, cleaning and caring, that it clearly, this history clearly does have um, very profound contemporary resonances. And in fact, Jane, uh, you started with talking about those in your introduction when you um, mentioned the way in which COVID-19 has um, really focused people's attention from the degree to which women continue to bear the kind of uh, burden of the majority of work in the home. But having said that, I agree with uh, Jane Whittle that it's crucial to kind of not fall into this trap of seeing women's workers somehow outside of history as something that's just sort of natural and unchanging and inherently feminine because of course the whole point of I think both our research is to show that it's something that is fundamentally shaped by the economy and is indeed part of history. Um, I think I mean, something that I was very interested in listening to Jane's uh, talk was uh, what she said about how the, con the the word housewife or housewifery has very different meanings in the early modern period than it does in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and the feminists that I was looking at, people active in the early 20th century, were very aware of that shift. They talked about it a lot. I think they probably romanticise the medieval and the early modern housewife, but they um, identified a kind of important historical rupture from pre-industrial times when, according to them, uh, that uh, women's work was valued, 
uh, it involved a, a, a wide range of different kinds of very skilled tasks. Jane mentioned baking, brewing, weaving, spinning. Um, and the feminists that I was reading suggested that uh, with industrialization in the 19th century, there was an important rupture, not just in terms of the economy, but also in terms of the status of these feminine roles. And so they argue that um, not only does the role of the housewife become limited, but what the housewife gets left with, simply cooking and cleaning, is the kind is a kind of um, uncreative uh, form of they call it drudge work. This word drudge work comes up again and again. So I think we might want to, um, or I certainly would want to, kind of problematize their analysis of what counts as creative work and what counts as drudge work. But equally, I think it is interesting that these very early feminists were well aware of, of some kind of rupture that they felt had occurred within women's uh, work and particularly in the kind of um, understanding of what it meant to be a housewife. Uh, I guess the last thing I want to say is to pick up on what Jane was talking about, about the demarketization of many forms of domestic labor um, that occurs after her period. So she talked about, for example, breastfeeding being a form of paid work um, in the early modern period. And I think that, of, of course, that occurs, but I think in the last 30 years, we're seeing the remarketization of almost all of those forms of work, probably bar breastfeeding just but only just I mean certainly quite a number of uh, well-paid professional couples now employ night nurses when they have a young baby to stay in their house and get up in the middle of the night and feed their baby so um, Lucy Delap writes that uh, the domestic service industry is as big now as it was in the 1930s um, and so perhaps the exceptional moment was a kind of blip maybe after the Second World War, when um, ser domestic service declined in the West dramatically, the full-time housewife became, at the very least, the assumed norm, even if it wasn't always the reality for lots of women. And then, as James mentioned, we get a change once again in the kind of, from the 1980s onwards, with more and more uh, mothers and wives uh, now working full-time. But I think it might be interesting I think this longer view allows us to sort of turn on um, turn on its head this concept that uh, most domestic work is unchanging and is done unpaid by women in the home. To the contrary, actually, I think what both my work, the contemporary world and Jane's work are revealing are periods in which this housework is commodified and um, paid and very much integrated into a capitalist economy. Yeah, can I can I just add to that? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, and I, I think, I mean, there is still a kind of squeamishness about treating um, care work and housework as if it's real work. Um, but the mere fact that it, it sort of can go in and out of the, the um, economy as defined by economists, so that the sort of paid work economy, um, suggests that actually it really does need to be studied and it does need to be included within 
things like GDP because it's a really important part of the economy. Um, and um, and I would really kind of resist um, the idea that it somehow shouldn't be part of the economy um, just because it deals with um, the home or with children. Um, it's still work, you know, it still has to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And and as um, I think in, in Laura, your paper makes really clear, you know, this is the kind of work that enables other forms of, of labour. Um, but I want to come back to this sort of point about language use um, and in particular um, sort of the way the term domestic has been has been used um, and I'm really struck by how it's used in sort of very gendered ways but also you know often very imprecisely um, as, as Jane you made clear so I'm wondering you know should we is there a better way of, of talking about this kind of work or um, you know should how do people at the at the times that you're studying refer to this sort of this kind of labor I think, I mean, in the period I study, people don't actually talk about it very much, which which is kind of difficult for the historian. Um, and in the research we've been doing, um, like collecting evidence of work tasks, it's quite interesting. Well, you start to you start to realise that um, so the, the kind of cooking, cleaning consisted of a different repertoire of tasks in that period so actually the things that are taking up time are collecting water and collecting fuel um and actual cooking often didn't take that much time because it consisted of putting things in a pot over the fire and childcare, um which is in the modern world a very time consuming um activity uh People generally did it parallel to other tasks in, in the earlier period. Um, so you don't often get people describing themselves as um, looking after a child, but, but incidental evidence comes up that, you know, they were breastfeeding a child when something else happened, or they were carrying a child when they were walking around um, doing some other kind of errand. Um, so, so yeah, I think it, it, it's quite tricky getting at that evidence because you have to be alive to the way yeah people are referring or not referring to it in a in a particular historical period. Yes, and in in contrast, in my period in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, people are talking about domestic work all the time. Um, and the terms that they use are, are quite similar to the terms that we would use today. So they, they use this term housework and they use this term domestic service or domestic work. Um, they, there are, within, within first wave feminism, there are um, very in-depth and quite sort of theoretically sophisticated discussions going on about what is the kind of nature of this work? What is the essence 
of domestic work and what does or doesn't make it different from other forms of work. Um, and so I mentioned already the way in which many people defined cooking and cleaning as drudge work, somehow as inherently more degrading, less creative, less skilled, more boring than other forms of work. There's a debate about this. Not everyone agrees on that, but that's a strong theme within these feminist discussions. Childcare, big efforts are made to distinguish childcare from cooking and cleaning at this time. And so this is a period when um, the first sort of professional nurseries are being established. There's a desire to train housemaids um, and to provide professional childcare also for working class women. And so there's an attempt to, by feminists um, to try and sort of recuperate childcare as a form of work that is more skilled, uh, is higher status, um, is more creative. Um, I, I, it's very difficult, I would suggest as a kind of historian um, and feminist looking at these debates 100 years on that actually in the early 20th century, just as today, it's actually not possible nor very useful to attempt to establish clear boundaries between uh, different kinds of domestic work or between domestic work and non-domestic work or between indeed productive labour or reproductive labour. I mean, I think the term that is probably theoretically most useful to me is this term reproductive labour because that doesn't just limit us to talking about cooking and cleaning um, or looking after sick people. It also enables us to think about emotional labour, the work you do to uh, calm your husband down at the end of the day, for example, um, to support each other in order to get through your university degree, for example. And these are discussions that I often have with my students on a course that I teach on um, modern British feminism. And we kind of try to come up with as many examples as we can of what constitutes reproductive labour. And in fact, uh, you know, this this can be a very broad umbrella term. And so I'm more interested in thinking about um, different forms of workers operating on a spectrum rather than seeing reproductive versus productive labour as very, very clearly distinguished from each other. Thanks for that. Um, just to to end our discussion today, I want to um, ask you both where you think or where you would like to see this this work and and your findings on on women's work and in particular your historiographical interventions. You know, where would you like to see them going in in the future? Um, to be very uh, blunt, I would like historians and political commentators and political activists to recognise that the working class does not just consist of men and to examine the multiple forms of labour that working class people do uh, and to acknowledge that that labour is often done by women. Um, I guess, and I'd like the trade union movement to attend to that more closely as well. And I think we are seeing some really exciting developments. I think that it is the case that um, 
at least in London, a lot of cleaners unions are some of the most dynamic um, and uh, unions that are actually winning stuff at the moment. And so I think it is possible to look to both historical and contemporary examples of a feminized form of work, whether that's done by women and men or just mainly women, but to see a feminized form of work as a place where uh, class struggle, if you like, can take place as a site for political organizing, um, as well as more traditional male dominated forms of factory work. Jane. Yeah, so I guess what I would like is is really a redefinition of the economy to include um, unpaid service work as well as paid service work. And with that, a recognition um, when we're thinking about the modern world, so people talk about the work-life balance, when in fact, usually what they mean is the balance between paid and unpaid work. And that's what's um, become such a important crunch point during COVID-19 lockdown is that, you know, people have, many people have been trying to do two full-time jobs, one doing paid work and one doing unpaid work. So I think real recognition that this unpaid work is just as important to the economy, it is absolutely vital. Um, either that unpaid work needs to be divided um, equally between men and women, or we need to move to a different type of economy, something like universal basic income, whereby we guarantee wages to everyone. So it's kind of the wages for housework, but rephrased in a slightly different way um, through reconceptualizing what the economy actually is. Yes, I, I, I'd like to just say that I couldn't agree with more with what Jane just said. And in addition to that, that if in all, as well as sharing this work equally between men and women, we also need to reduce the amount of time that we spend in what is currently paid work so that we have the yeah. time to do all this other kind of work rather than it being this extra thing that we then either fight over at home with whoever we live with in the household or that we offload onto what is usually a low paid migrant worker to come and do it instead. Um, so a, a, recon a sort of reconfiguring of the economy that also reduces our working day full stop and allows us some time to do stuff that isn't work, like having fun. And yeah, I agree. Yeah. Swimming. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. I think you've both sort of very clearly shown why you know, this question of, of women's work is not only, you know, important for historians, but also for, you know, the current world in which we're living. So thank you very much, Laura and Jane.